Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Sometimes I think about the fact that the Buddha has near universal name recognition. I mean, there are statues of the guy in spas and restaurants and in everybody's backyard. And yet most people know almost nothing about who he actually was, or more importantly, what he actually taught. As a friend of mine recently joked, it's like there's an inverse relationship between the Buddha's Q rating and what most people actually know about him. If you want to get to the core of what the guy taught, perhaps a great place to start would be something called the Eightfold Path. As many of you know, the Buddha liked to make lists as teaching tools, and one of, if not the most important list, is the Eightfold Path. It's an eight-part recipe, essentially, for doing life better. Today, we are launching a three-part series on this eight-part list. Why only three parts for the series is a pretty good question. And there's actually a pretty good answer. The Eightfold Path is often divided into three chunks or buckets. So we're going to bring on master meditation teachers to walk us through each of these three buckets. We're going to kick things off today with Dara Williams, about whom much more in a moment. Next Wednesday, we'll do part two with Eugene Cash, and we will wrap things up in two weeks with the great Joseph Goldstein. As I mentioned on Monday... As you may have heard, we're running an experiment for the month of May. We're launching two concurrent series. We're going to do some weaving here. Every Monday, we're doing a series we're calling Bold Face, where we interview celebrities who are brave enough to talk about the darkest shit in their lives. And then on Wednesdays, we're going to go Deep Dharma. So uh, hit me up on Twitter, actually. I'd be very curious to hear if, if any of you have feedback on how this strategy is working or whether it's working. Uh, you can also comment through our website. Before we dive in here, a little bit about Dara Williams. She's been a meditator for the past 25 years. She's a graduate of the Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Society teacher training program, and she's a guiding teacher at the Insight Meditation Society as well. That's in Barrie, Massachusetts. And she has spent over 30 years as a mental health clinician and administrator. In this conversation, we talk about the first two components of the Eightfold Path, which are right view, also known as wise or skillful understanding, and right thinking, aka wise or skillful thought. I just want to say right here that these may sound vague, but there is a ton here. These two notions are, as Dara says, the soil for the whole path. We also talk about how the Eightfold Path has played out in Dara's own life, the notions of intuition, clear seeing, and openness, why those are so important to her, and the very tricky skills of renunciation and fostering non-attachment to the results of our endeavors. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. From bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Darrell Williams, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Appreciate that. I appreciate you. <laughs> Let me start with a big, broad, probably overly obvious question, which is, what is the Eightfold Path? Well, that could definitely take more than an hour and a half or however long <laughs> we, we've got it. But what I will say is that it is one of the components of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are actually the organizing conceptual principles of the whole of the Dhamma and the practice. And so it's kind of the first recognitions and understandings that the Buddha had upon enlightenment. You know, Buddhism and Dharma study can be very interplaying and integrative. This is really one of the foundational components of Buddhism and Dharma. It's really at the base for everything we study and practice and the jump-off point for actually moving towards liberation and freedom. And so it's, on the one hand, very simple, but on the other hand, quite deep, right? The Buddha had this realization or this understanding coming into awakening that there are four basic principles to build upon in terms of moving towards liberation, and that would be the four noble truths. The first truth being that there is suffering, or in Pali, dukkha. The second truth being that there is a cause or a reason why there's suffering. The third noble truth being there's a way out or a path or an end 
to this suffering. And the fourth noble truth, which is the one we're focusing in on today, is the Eightfold Path, a set of guidelines that if one practices and engages, these eight steps will actually take you to liberation. If not liberation, certainly an open heart and ability to live with less suffering in one's life. So that's what the Eightfold Path is. It's kind of circuitous within the Four Noble Truths and the Four Noble Truths being within the Eightfold Path. So it's kind of like if you're working with this, you can't miss it. (laughs) You're going to hit everything (laughs) you need to hit at some point. The Buddha was all about lists on lists on lists. sure. (laughs) You've used words like liberation, freedom, and one can understand the Eightfold Path as a kind of a recipe for enlightenment. However, there are for sure listeners to this show who either don't believe in enlightenment, don't know what that means, don't care. So for those folks, I guess you could say that we could think about the Eightfold Path as just a recipe for living a happier life. Absolutely. And when I use the word liberation, I am not necessarily speaking to just a realization of nirvana, as many people who are in-depth dharma practitioners and followers believe in. I'm literally talking about liberation from pain and suffering. Regardless of what your belief systems are, we're all moving through life with challenges in relationship to lots of suffering whether it be minuscule and on the small level, like that slight dissatisfaction with the way things are or wanting something to be different, or the bigger things like illness or loss or death or, you know, these kinds of things that cause us to have pain and suffering. It's relevant regardless of what the level of engagement with Dharma or Buddhism is. Well said. Now, I am definitely not an expert in the Eightfold Path, but if memory serves, the eight entries in the list are often divided up into three groups. We're going to focus today on the first two, which comprise their own group, but can you just kind of walk us through the groupings overall so we can get a familiarity with the entire landscape, and then we'll dive in on the first two. So the first two of the Eightfold Path are skillful or wise understanding and skillful or wise thinking. The second basket is skillful or wise speech, skillful or wise action, or skillful or wise livelihood. And as you can hear, that basket has a lot of action in it, has a lot of movement in it in terms of practice. And then the third basket is skillful or wise effort, skillful or wise mindfulness, and skillful or wise concentration. And as people hear this, it might be useful to try on those three words, right, skillful, and wise, and see what reverberates or aligns with your nervous system in terms of being the most useful way to understand the baskets and relate to them and access them. These baskets, I understand the second basket and the third basket. The second basket is really around ethics, speech, and action, and how you make your living. The third basket seems to me about, you know, meditation practice, concentration, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand this first basket that we're going to talk about today? What did the Buddha mean by thinking specifically? I think a lot of people might say to themselves, I thought, you know, in Buddhism, you weren't supposed to think that much. Oh, how many times have I heard that? (laughs) Because you're right. A lot of people do interpret that that's partly what's being taught about it. So, you know, I'll start just by saying that the first two, 
view or understanding and thinking, this basket kind of sets the tone or sets the premise for everything that comes after it. The first two or the first basket is kind of like the soil, you know, and so you're like prepping, you know, making sure all the minerals are in there, making sure that whatever's needed to grow a healthy plant is in there. So skillful understanding or wise understanding is really about understanding the Four Noble Truths and understanding the content or the offerings that are Buddhist in nature. It sets the precedence for being able to actually move towards practicing, move towards bringing this into existence in one's own life. Because, you know, if you are not clear, if you don't understand, if you're off view, then whatever you put on top of that is going to be off, kind of like the domino effect. So it's really important to have clear understanding, to have wise view about things, about what you're learning, about what you're experiencing, about various conditions of mind and heart. So that's how I would kind of describe understanding or view. And I think it's useful to use both of those words interchangeably because they have slightly different energies. The wording has slightly different energy. And I think probably why there's even those two ways of speaking about this first step onto the Eightfold Path is because English doesn't always reflect full quality of the poly. So there's probably some in-between way that view and understanding has a word in poly that wasn't present in English. And so they broke it down into these two ways of working with it. And then there's skillful thinking or wise thinking. You know, when people say, oh, I thought the whole premise of Buddhism was to not think. The actuality is the mind thinks. Just like the lungs breathe and the heart beats, the mind thinks. What this whole path is about, but particularly this second step, is training and conditioning the mind to think in skillful ways, to think in ways that are non-harming, to have clarity about things. But it's inevitable. We have a nervous system. We have interaction. It's inevitable that there's going to be thinking. It's not about trying to get rid of the thinking. It really is about cultivating the mind to have more thought and thinking that is useful, skillful, wise in nature versus not skillful or harmful or wrong. That's how I delineate or start to distinguish those two steps. And you can probably hear as you take some of that in why they are the first two steps so that as you approach and move through the next six steps, there is some foundation to the mind being clear, to the mind being ready to engage with the other steps. Just to pick up on what you were saying there, we're going to dive much more deeply into right slash wise slash skillful view and right slash wise slash skillful thinking. But if I step all the way back and survey the Eightfold Path in its entirety, if I'm hearing you correctly, you were just pretty explicit about this. The Eightfold Path is sort of a guidebook for doing life better. And it gets pretty specific about, you know, speech and action and how to meditate. But you can't really go anywhere if you don't have a compass. And these two beginning aspects of the Eightfold Path are foundational in that way. Exactly. You got it. Yep. 
compass, direction, because you can have all the earnestness of effort, all the aspirations for wanting, but if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to land at the goal. All right. So let's start with view or understanding here. You talked about it a little bit, but I think it would be smart to really go pretty deep on this now. How do I understand what the Buddha was pointing out when he said view? Is it to realize that our culturally conditioned view of the world, which is like we're going to live forever and the way to get happy is to accumulate as much stuff as possible, that that is a recipe for suffering? Am I in the neighborhood? You are definitely, you're on the block. (laughs) You're not just in the neighborhood, you're on the block. Absolutely. I think the first stepping into the Eightfold Path is really gaining knowing and understanding. Visceral maybe is a word I'd use, but an experiential understanding of the first three noble truths, that there is suffering. Suffering is inevitable. It's part of the human condition. It's part of being embodied. That's like the first opportunity to touch into a little bit the possibility of freedom from suffering, like to realize it's inescapable, just like death is inescapable, suffering is inescapable. So this eightfold path, it's not that you have to accomplish one before you go on to two, before you go on to three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like some place that you land and then you're there permanently and you kind of just merrily, happily go skipping through the rest of your life. It's kind of like a constant or an ongoing balancing that has to be assessed and paid attention to and put into the view of awareness. I love that. Yes, this isn't a checklist where you go through all of them, you get your like Eagle Scout merit badges and you're done. It's a guide that you can use throughout the various ups and downs of any human life. Yes, 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 exactly. That's what really makes this path like a living guideline or a living path, that it's constantly useful to take a look, see what's happening. How am I living? To really incorporate that or include that as some kind of ongoing self-investigation. I love how you talked earlier about how, I think you used the word circuitous or interconnecting this list is. So wise understanding, which is the first part of the Eightfold Path, basically is understanding, as you said before, the first three noble truths. Everything is connected here, which just brings me to a question. In your life, how has achieving some measure of understanding or view played out and been helpful? Mm, That's a good question. It's a good question because one of the things that's, I won't say a challenge, but that I'm not so quick to bring forward for myself is I'm somebody that experiences life very much from the felt sense way. And so cognitively and intellectually putting words to a lot of my experience doesn't necessarily come easy to me. But in response to the question, one of my first teachers, and she's been a a mentor and a support for me in the Dhamma since I first stepped onto the path, is Gina Sharp. And one of the things that she taught is that the Dharma is like a kaleidoscope. And, you know, when you turn the two parts of the kaleidoscope so that everything falls into focus, and then there's some beautiful picture that you're seeing. So when I think about my life, it's kind of like that 
in that I've been engaging in different practices within the Dhamma. And through the process of engaging in these practices, it has brought my view into alignment. Personally, equanimity has been really, really, I think, the major organizing principle bringing that understanding to the Eightfold Path and literally sometimes catching myself and looking at how at any given moment something is playing out in any one of the eight steps. One of the ones that I get to work with a lot is livelihood. Like now, livelihood is pretty much in alignment with living the path and really reducing the amount of stress and suffering that I live in my life. But there was a time when there was really a question around, am I utilizing my energy, my mind, my understanding, my heart in a way that is useful and contributing to human beings? Hmm. One of the places that I have not so much yet had a whole lot of success, I'm much better than I used to be, but driving and write speech. (laughs) For me, that's my playground where I'm really working with stuff. But the one thing I will say about that is that whatever my initial or reactive response is to any situation or condition or circumstance that arises as a result of driving, whereas it used to take me off my center, I would be furious. I'd be, I can't even say what the kinds of things that I would say. And now, having worked these steps and having studied and practiced the Dhamma to the degree that I have, the response still comes. It's just right there. The response just still comes. But immediately after I say whatever the thing is that I say, I will say to myself, now you know that ain't right. You don't know what this person is dealing with. They may be trying to get to the hospital or, you know, whatever. I'll start making up the story to support why speech. So there's been a shift in that being one of the places. And you know what? I guess what I'm saying, which I use that to illustrate, is that in my life, personally, the place where the Eightfold Path has impacted me the most is probably around anger and rage. Hmm. Yeah probably around anger and rage. And especially earlier in my life, there was a lot of that that manifested or showed up like passive aggressiveness. But over the course of the work, over the course of unfolding and unfurling and growing the seeds of Dhamma in my life, not a whole lot of that going on anymore. Hmm. Even with all the many, many conditions and circumstances that could easily be righteously bringing that forward. (laughs) And a big piece of how I do everything that I do and do it with a smile is that one, really that effort and that usefulness of being present in the moment. So not thinking about what I have to do coming or what I didn't do leaving, but really being present in the moment. And also the experience and the understanding of how draining it is to be fearful, to be angry, to be, you know, any any number of things. It's really draining. It really takes a lot of energy to entertain those conditions in those states. And I don't really have time for that. But I think cumulatively speaking, pretty much equanimity and balance are the name of the game as I move through each day. And applying that, applying equanimity and balance to the Eightfold Path. It's a fantastic 
insight into how this list has played out in your life. And it's inspiring. I mean, there are a couple things in there that I really resonate with. One is I have my own <laughs> penchant for anger and rage, and it's just so not helpful for me. And the other is how you talked about how draining it is to be in a state of fear. And I was just, I had a conversation with my wife today. We both work at home and she came into my office and I was sitting there and she has an incredible radar for when I'm in a rabbit hole. And I said, yeah, I'm just like stuck on all these what if thoughts about career stuff. And she was like, look, we're going to be fine no matter what. You should just know we're going to deal with it, whatever happens. And I... (laughs) I was like, yes, I wish I could have accessed that on my own, (laughs) but it is so draining. Like I was supposed to be doing something creative in that time and I couldn't because I was so stuck in this what if thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That stuckness or that worry or fear or it's not about not allowing that to arise if that's the real truth to the moment of what you're experiencing, but it's actually catching yourself and knowing Like I said about the driving, now it's like the minute it's out there, I see it, as opposed to two days later, still talking about the guy that was behind me flashing his lights trying to get in my trunk, you know? So it's... (laughs) (laughs) That's mild. That's mild, Dan. (laughs) That's exactly it. We're not trying to squelch any emotion or thought pattern. We're trying to have a different relationship to it so we're not drowning in it all exactly. the time. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many times I can hear those words. It's amazing how many times I can say those words. And the need for me to hear and say it over and over again seems to never fully evaporate. Coming up, Darrell Williams talks about intuition, clear seeing, and openness, why these three qualities are important to her, the four Brahma Viharas, another four qualities that are important to her, and how we can all work to cultivate wise thought. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for 
an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor, did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. So let's just go back to skillful or wise of you or understanding. You have said that to your mind, there are like at least three parts of it that play out in your life to this wise view. And those include intuition, clear seeing, and openness. Can you say more about each of those? Mm. So maybe I'll start with openness. So what I'm referring to or how I'm thinking about the openness piece is that if we're not open, if we're not willing to engage the possibility that there's another way of understanding or that there's another way of thinking. It kind of closes us down to the possibility of really engaging with any aspect of the Eightfold Path. And then the intuition piece is really around using the body as one of the components of how we can gain understanding and awareness about what's happening with this system, our system, our body, our mind, our heart. And intuition in our culture is not necessarily one of the pieces that are highly developed, you know, like really leaning into and trusting the wisdom and understanding that comes from the intuition, that comes from the felt sense, the pre-verbal, pre-cognitive kind of way of understanding something. If you have the ability to plug in or listen to or acknowledge the information through the body, that's a great support for working the Eightfold Path. Those lead to clear seeing, like not through the lens of the ego, of past experience. Past experience should inform us, but it shouldn't determine action and choices. But I think all three of those, openness, intuition, clear seeing, are important considerations. It might not be something that everybody can plug into, but I think that they're important considerations to support the Eightfold Path. I like this a lot, and I like it in part because it's not an area where I'm particularly strong. So if I'm going to recapitulate it, what you're saying is openness and intuition can help us see things clearly. And I'm curious, how do we go about developing openness and intuition, which one might define as kind of like the intellect that resides south of the neck? That's right. That's right. Yeah, that is intuition. For me, one of the ways to access that is actually through meditative practice, especially intuition, because in the silence, in the quiet, 
you can actually plug into or get present to the experience of what intuition feels like, looks like in your body system. And then once you have an understanding or a knowing of that, you can then use that information to cultivate a connection to intuition in your body. This may sound really, really simplistic, but for all of those, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, like taking care of this body, at least at the very base level, in terms of what's useful for supporting the body and, you know, walking this earth. I also said, I know you and I talked about this, I think it was when when we were together the last time, because I think I spoke about equanimity then, but the engagement of the Brahma Viharas, like intuition, that's intuition territory, really. (laughs) Really cultivating our capacity and our internal experience of loving friendliness or loving kindness. Those are two words that are used to describe this non-codependent feeling of wanting people to be well including ourselves, not just people, like we're in that too. This is not about that today, but I'll just name the other three are compassion, which is not wishing ill to anyone, including oneself, as well as being able to cultivate the capacity to sit beside or be with suffering. And then having the wish or the want for people to not suffer. And then the third heart quality or Brahma Vihara is sympathetic joy, which is taking delight and pleasure in the joy that someone else is experiencing or actually lending some of your joy to someone else, perhaps, if they're not able to generate it for themselves or bring it into existence for themselves. And then for me in my personal evolution and in my personal life, the most powerful of the four has been equanimity. And that's what I've based a lot of my whole practice around, regardless of what aspect of practice I might be engaging with at any time. But equanimity, the ability, the capacity to stay in the middle, to be equidistanced from suffering and difficulty and elation and joy, but just be able to stay, Bhikkhu Bodhi says it this way, to be able to stay in the middle. And when I talk to people about equanimity, I describe it as for many of us, probably I'll include you in this generation. And when we grew up, there was such a thing as a seesaw. And we'd be on the seesaw with our friend. And so there's the going up and down, which was fun. But the real fun thing was like trying to get it to stay even with both of you on both sides. And the constant adjustments that had to be made in order for that equanimity, in order for that equal, that straight board, And so I find that the Brahma Viharas, any one of them, certainly all four of them, are a good contribution to any aspect of practice that any one of us might be engaged with. But certainly around those qualities of intuition, clear seeing, and openness. You did a nice description there of the Brahma Viharas. For people who haven't studied or practiced or learned about this in the past, these are just these four mental skills of sort of friendliness, compassion, the ability to take pleasure in other people's happiness and equanimity or balance in the face of whatever's going on that are trainable through forms of meditation. I found that practicing the Brahma Viharas, which roughly translate into the 
for heavenly abodes, which is a kind of grand way of putting it, but you can just think about them as very useful mental skills. I found that practicing mindfulness, which allows me to have self-awareness that includes awareness of like how my body's feeling in any given moment with, and I don't understand exactly the mechanism for this, with, you know, loving kindness, just sort of warming up my whole system being more friendly as a frosty New Englander that does not come naturally <laughs> to me, really has improved my intuition, my ability in a moment to see that it's not just what I'm thinking about what's happening, it's also what I'm feeling about what's happening that can guide me. Can you just say a little bit more about how we can practice wise thought? I don't know that you practice wise thought as much, and this may be a matter of semantics, as much as it is that you cultivate wise thought. Hmm. Because that's what we want to do. We want to cultivate wise thought. And there's three aspects of wise thought. So the first aspect of wise thought is renunciation, knowing or touching into the experience of non-addiction. Right. I mean, we can be addicted to anything. It doesn't just have to be drugs or alcohol or gambling or sex or whatever. We can be addicted to work. There's so much that we can be addicted to. It's kind of like one of the components of human nature that lends itself towards causing suffering. So there's this practice of renunciation, understanding that it's a gradual process. And you can maybe begin this practice with using a practice of restraint, practicing the wisdom of the word, no, sorry, can't do, won't have, da, 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 da. but really practicing the wisdom of no and how that lends itself towards changing habituated patterns that we might have. So there's a little line from Ajahn Chah, who is one of the teachers of many of us that are speaking from the Theravadan or insight or Vipassana lineage of thinking. And Ajahn Chah was one of the great teachers. And he said, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little bit of peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. So that's how I hold renunciation. It's really like the letting go, like letting it be, like leaving it alone. We are so inclined towards having, getting, doing more, being more, all of this kind of like never present and satisfied with where we are at any given moment. And so I think really being thoughtful about creating conditions of time, of rest, of well-being, of the habits and the conditions that support not suffering could be a really useful practice. So there's that first aspect in terms of working with wise thought. Then the second aspect, which we kind of actually touched into a little bit, is loving kindness. So cultivating thoughts that lead to our own well-being and the well-being of others, thoughts free of judgment, non-acceptance, wanting someone to be different, wanting ourselves to be different, but all of those kinds of conversations. The antidote is loving kindness. So cultivating loving kindness or practicing loving kindness is one of the ways to work with developing and cultivating wise thought. And I have a little something for loving kindness too. And this is Neoshu Ken Rinpoche who said, I would like to pass on one little piece of advice I give to everyone. 
relax. Just relax. Be nice to each other. As you go through life, simply be kind to people. Try to help them rather than hurt them. Try to get along with them rather than fall out with them. With that, I will leave you and with all my very best wishes. Like so simple. And then the third aspect that's helpful in cultivating wise thought is practicing compassion. You know, having this understanding and this place of knowing that we human beings walk with so much and that there is so much suffering, whether it's the little suffering or the big suffering, there's just so much suffering. And to bring compassion to that, let me come back around and say that one of the unskillful or one of the unwise components of unskillful thinking is cruelty, wishing ill will on people, like wanting to get back at people, causing harm to people. And compassion is the antidote for that. And so we're working with our thoughts such that at some point with practice, the probability is that a skillful thought is going to arise as opposed to an unskillful thought that's going to arise. And so these are kind of like some of the ways to work with thought and that are really useful. And again, it's so interesting. This is just as I'm speaking and as we're here today with each other, just really present to the simplicity of this path, but the real challenge of sustaining and maintaining a foot on the path in the face of all that we are navigating on a daily basis. What I like about this is perfection is not on offer, at least not for most of us, and maybe even not to the enlightened. The Eightfold Path isn't calling on us to be, you know, utterly and unimpeachably immaculate. What right or wise thinking, and what I'm hearing you describe as the ways to cultivate it through renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion, what these practices can do, what this cultivation can do, as you have just said, is make it more likely that in any given moment, even when we're at our worst, we might have a skillful thought as opposed to an unskillful thought. Yeah. And every time you have that skillful thought versus an unskillful thought, you're building capacity, you're building muscle, you're building the bridge over less suffering. If you have a skillful thought, you're not going to suffer behind a skillful thought, but you sure as hell going to suffer behind some unskillful thought, whether it's minuscule or big. For me, I'm all about like, if I don't have to suffer. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do and I will do it. I will practice it. I am interested <laughs> in not suffering. <laughs> I share that interest. <laughs> Coming up, Dura talks about loving kindness and her own work at boosting that muscle in her own mind. And we also talk about two uh, sometimes tricky concepts for modern Western people, renunciation and not being attached to outcomes. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment 
or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And really... This gets me back to something we touched on a couple times here, which is the Brahma Viharas, or these were sometimes referred to, and I don't really love this term, but heart practices, you know, developing loving kindness or compassion, you know, and, and again, for anybody who's new to the show and hasn't really heard about this before, generally these are practiced by informal meditation. You sit in formal meditation, you close your eyes and envision a series of beings, animals, or humans, and send them good wishes. Like if you're trying to generate the capacity for loving kindness or friendliness, you maybe start with yourself and you picture yourself and you say, may you be happy or may I be happy? May I be healthy, safe, live with ease. And then you move on to an easy person, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then all beings everywhere. And then for compassion, you may picture somebody who's suffering and say, may you be free from suffering, may you be free from pain. In my opinion, especially for a beginner and a skeptic, it can be a very forced kind of saccharine practice. And yet, as I often say, if you went to a gym <laughs> as an yes. alien, a new being on this planet, and you saw people running in place for 45 minutes at a time or systematically picking up and putting down heavy objects, that would look forced and strange too. But it does build the body. And these practices build capacities of mind, and they can have a bearing on our thinking. And I believe, as previous guests on the show have pointed out, that there's at least preliminary evidence to show that meta or loving kindness practice, which I have jokingly referred to as Valentine's Day with a gun to your head, this loving kindness practice can reduce bias. And I've seen it in my own life that the more friendliness I have, and on a related note, the more compassion I have, the more tuned in I am to the suffering of others and of my own suffering, the less judgmental I am, the more I see that I'm a mess and therefore everybody's a mess and I don't need to be as judgmental, which by the way, is a good source of suffering, very reliable source of suffering being judgmental. So anyway, I'm saying a lot of words in support of your words. Yes, yes. Well, I appreciate that. And you're speaking about training. When you talked about going to a gym and what are people doing? People are training their bodies, training their hearts, training their good health. We use the word practice a lot, but another useful way to think about it is that we're in a training to bring about conditions that cause less suffering. 
And you're the best example of the Brahmavars of like meta loving kindness cutting through the <laughs> the energetics of skepticism and judgment and all of those good New England um, <laughs> ways of seeing the world. And each success, each growth of capacity around any of the things that we're talking about lends itself or leads itself to there being more capacity. What you were just speaking to in terms of the heart qualities or developing the heart. I just came out from Georgia. I drove from Savannah, Georgia to New Jersey. And especially down south, you stop in these out-of-the-way places to get gas and you go in and you see the cashier. And it like occurred to me as I'm moving along down the South, like these folks don't even get seen. They're in here, you know, making sure the gas get pumped. I went into this one and, and there was a young lady. She must have been probably in her mid-20s, maybe even a little bit younger. And I noticed that she had a tint of color in her hair. And I looked at her and I was like, I really like that hair color you have. And her whole face, like she smiled, like she was seen right? She was actually seen and actually engaged with, right? And what that caused in terms of, even if it's just for that moment, one, that connection with another human being, but two, also this real sense of loving friendliness. And I've kind of taken that on as a practice. Seeing people, and not just seeing them internally, oh, I see that person, but actually connecting with people that I'll see for that moment, never see again, but offer one moment of being seen as a fellow human being and what that does for me, not just what that does for the person that I'm engaging with. There's a lot of data to support the argument you're making, not that we need data necessarily, but Barbara Fredrickson who's been on the show before, wrote a book called Love 2.0, and her evidence base, her research, suggests mm -hmm. strongly that these micro-interactions can really add up to a significant boost in your happiness. And in my experience, practicing loving-kindness and compassion formally on the cushion makes me more likely as somebody who can, you know, spend a lot of his time with his head up his own ass, makes me much more likely to see people I otherwise would have ignored. And mm -hmm. that is good for them, I think, but I know that it's good for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Before I let you go, I do want to go back to renunciation because that's a loaded word. A lot of people hear it and, you know, it doesn't seem attractive. And your reframing of it as non-addiction is very resonant. And yet when I hear quotes like the one you read from Ajahn Chah that, you know, a little bit of letting go will give us a little bit of happiness or peace. And then a lot of letting go will give us a lot of peace. And then complete letting go will lead to complete peace. It sounds right. And yet, you know, I don't know how to practice that because, you know, I have a seven-year-old son. I'm definitely not going to practice non-attachment to him. And I love my cats and my wife and my friends. And, you know, I'm pretty attached to this house we live in. How do I begin to make inroads here? Mm. So non-attachment to outcome as opposed to person or cat or house or son. So we're kind of moving a little bit into, for me, a little bit into the domain of trust and faith, that when you are engaged in actions, practices, ways of living, 
that foster and cultivate well-being, reducing suffering for self and others automatically to trust that the outcome of some circumstance, situation, or condition, it's out of our control anyway, right? And so being loving towards your wife, being loving towards your son, being loving towards your cat person too, appreciating your home, your house, bringing all of this goodness in relationship to your relationships, to things. But really, when you get to the end point, at some point you have to let it go. You know, knowing that you've done all that you could do to cultivate goodness, to cultivate well-being. So there's another word that I'm going to throw in here in relationship to the non-addiction and renunciation, and that's generosity. And like generosity and appreciation for the goodness in life, for the goodness in others. That's really how you begin to practice that. I mean, the core, the bottom line to addiction is us trying to make things good. So to cultivate goodness in a skillful way, not in an artificial way, is one of the goals. So one of the places to start might be to investigate what are the meanings or what is the understanding in relationship to the word renunciation? What does it generate in your body? What does it generate in your mind? To actually become intimately aware of where you are in relationship to renunciation. And then you can start to see, okay, well, I can just let that go. I no longer need that belief. Or you can say, oh, I may need to deconstruct this a little bit. You'll be able to delineate and determine for yourself if there's anything to be done about it. I think you put your finger on something important because I wasn't really aware of it until you pointed it out, but I think there's a misunderstanding because when I hear complete letting go, I guess I imagine just not giving a shit. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case at all. <laughs> it's actually you care very much, <laughs> but you care for creating well-being for self and others. Yeah, so for in my life, I can love that we have this house, but not be attached to us having it forever. I can love my wife and my child and my cats, but not expect that they're going to be here forever or that our relationship is going to be this way forever. And that's a healthier way to relate in a world that is hardwired for impermanence and chaos. Exactly. This understanding or this fact is that everything is impermanent. And that's painful. That causes challenge. When we're able to let go, when we let things be, it can support even deeper levels of love, of appreciation and generosity, because there's no attachment to the outcome. Is there something I should have asked but failed to ask? No, I don't think there's anything you fail to ask. I appreciate, and I know this is known by your listeners, and new people will see this if they didn't catch it today, but that you're just a person that's very transparent and authentic about being human. And I can appreciate that. And it's actually the fodder for great depth of learning to be able to be that transparent and forthcoming with who you are. And so the only thing I'd kind of come back around to is, yeah, lighten up. Because there's a lot to be heavy about. And so the conditions that support well-being, that support the 
access to energy and effort to engage the Eightfold Path, to really play it out, to really work with it, are the conditions of kind of lightening up and relaxing a little bit and bringing the mind to pay attention to what's happening for you as you engage with each step along the way. I've said this before, but the common denominator among all of the great spiritual practitioners or meditators or teachers, whatever you want to call it, having conducted hundreds of interviews on the show, and I would definitely put you in the category here, the virtues of, of which I'm about to extol, the common denominator of all the great meditation teachers that have come on the show is they do not take themselves too seriously. <laughs> they have a sense of humor. That doesn't mean they're trying to crack jokes all the time, but if you're sitting for hours and looking at your mind, eventually you're going to have to start laughing. You got it. That's, that is for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. Dara, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks again to Dara. Thanks as well to you for listening. Really appreciate your ears. And finally, thanks to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Justine Davey, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Monday for a brand new episode. We're going back to the celebs. And uh, we've got a great one coming up on Monday. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the super famous, deservedly so, astrophysicist. And don't forget, we're going to be continuing with this Eightfold Path series. Next Wednesday, it's Eugene Cash. After that, it's Joseph Goldstein. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.